Good morning. morning. Welcome back to the forum this morning. We've been off for a little bit, and so it's wonderful to gather back together um, and engage our faith around the issue of climate change and creation justice. So um, a few reminders. We will have a wonderful speaker, and at the end, there'll be opportunities to ask questions um, as a way for us to be an inclusive community. If you would please come up to this microphone um, to ask your question and go ahead and get close to it, make friends with it um, so that everybody can hear. It accesses our loop system and helps our community online to be able to hear your questions and engage in the conversation. Um, So please, when you have a question, go ahead and come up to the microphone at the end. I'm going to start us with prayer. Let us pray. Mysterious God, whose imagination and desire embrace all, we seek to discern you in the interplay of forces, in the order and the chaos of the universe, and in the complexities of every living system. Give us grace to honor your goodness in what we know and in what we do not know, in the world's harmonies and turbulence, and in its promise and change. For you are in, through, and beyond all that is, one God, made known to us in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, our inspiration and guide. Amen. And now... Sharon Young will introduce our guest speaker. Good morning, and thank you for being here. Uh, I am a member of the Faith and Advocacy Network Committee. You know Faith and Advocacy, right? Sometimes known as FAN. It upsets Ann Kramer when people don't know what FAN is. And so that's why I figured if I said Faith and Advocacy Network, you would know what it is. We are um, jointly sponsoring this with thanks to Elizabeth and the education um, here for giving us these these two Sundays to talk about creation care in a little more detail. It's it's really part of our Earth Month a little bit late. Uh, We kicked it off last week with a great tour at Georgia Tech of the Candida building, and Dr. Cobb just told me that her office is in the Candida building, and she feels very lucky about that. We have published her bio um, extensively, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but only to tell you that two years ago when, when Ed Bacon um, worked with us on facilitating several Sundays around creation care. She was supposed to be our first speaker, and then COVID came, and tech shut down, and she couldn't speak. But I assure you, she's worth the wait. So two years later, she's agreed to come as our kickoff speaker. Next Sunday, we have Dr. Mark Douglas from the Columbia Seminary. So we have a really great program, and this is the beginning of what we hope of getting all y'all more personally engaged in what we can do around protecting this fragile earth, our island home. Um, Dr. Cobb is the Georgia Power Chair and Professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. Um, I heard her speak two and a half years ago. She's a diver, and a lot of her research and work was around looking at coral reefs and what was going on in the oceans. 
Um, she's now also the director of Global Change Program at Georgia State, I mean, excuse me, Georgia Tech, and serves as the advanced professor for diversity, equity, inclusion in the College of Sciences. She's done a whole lot of research, and I'm going to let her talk about it because it's compelling and it's exciting and it's interesting. She's won a lot of awards nationally and internationally and is recognized for her very serious and meaningful work. Um, I think really um, that's all I really need to say about her because the best introduction of Dr. Cobb is Dr. Cobb. I would tell you that just coincidentally, I was reading uh, CNN yesterday, and I don't usually think about them using religious phrases, but the headline on their one of their web pages was, and it had to do with the loss of water at Lake Mead, which is now they're going to have to decide between water and electricity. And uh, as one who ran, ran, read the book of Revelations as a Baptist child, we're knocking on the door of Judgment Day. Judgment Day being when we don't have any water to give anybody. So I thought the day before I started this series, that was a little bit um, sobering, shall we say. So without further ado, Dr. Kim Cobb, and we will stop about 10.50 for your questions. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I guess I'm now, yeah, I'm on my own. Great. So um, thank you so much for that introduction and for the reminder of, of the poignancy of this moment that we find ourselves in. Um, you did miss one of the most important aspects of my bio, which is I'm a mother to four children. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a strong motivation for me and also a reminder of the stewardship uh, that we have uh, of this moment uh, as, as generations will unfold looking back on this moment. So, you know, climate change is a heavy subject, right? Uh, we've all been overwhelmed by some of these headlines. Um, I'm going to kind of move through some of the grim chapters as, as I've personally experienced them in my research and then pivot quickly to solutions because really what we need to be talking about is thinking about how we can plug in as individuals, as organizations, um, as, as, as voters uh, to steward in a new era. And I'm confident we will. Okay, that's the good news. That's a punchline. So let's, let's, let's get going. I am a diver. My coral research, um, we've been working in the middle Pacific Ocean for 20 years. And this is me uh, drilling a core out of a, a coral that it will basically provide a time cap of ocean temperatures stretching back uh, decades, centuries, and even millennia back in time to place this moment in proper context in terms of trends and extremes of these very remote areas of our oceans. And so that's really my life's work. And put into context, what we are seeing in the coral records is, of course, something that looks very similar to this uh, graph of global temperatures as they have evolved over the last 150 years or so. And as you can see, we've been tipping up into these deep red categories. And in particular, 2016 was tied with 2020 for their warmest year on record. We're not going to be breaking that record this year very likely, but certainly in the next two or three years, we'll be breaking another record. Obviously, this is... Um, um, all of these very late recent years topping the charts here. 
So one of these 2016 years, what uh, was the warmest year on record, um, happened to be a very important year for this reef that I worked at for 20 years. This is Christmas Island, so it's kind of in the geographic middle of the Pacific Ocean. And this was the reef that I had grown to, to know as my home away from home over uh, dozens of expeditions and the kind of thing where you walk in your kitchen and you know where the water glasses are. You know, I dive on these reefs and I know exactly where our instrumentation is. I know exactly where those, those corals are and what they looked like last year and how they've grown and changed. And so this is uh, leading up to 2014 and that record global temperature year actually uh, rained down as the largest ever extended uh, coral bleaching event at Christmas Island, which is this research site. And it was 10 months of bleaching level stress temperatures, and it killed 85% of the corals at this reef, and only 5% of them remained, and they were all smaller than a softball size. So this was a, a, a tipping point for this reef and the reefs that um, I work at across this area. And you know, obviously these reefs will never be the same because we're not going to have the decades that they would need to recover their former glory. Um, they're going to be kind of moving through a transition. And, and this reef, I, I think it's safe to say, um, was one of the largest, part of a, a global scale coral bleaching and mortality event um, that was a huge wake up call for even the coral climate change community. It occurred much sooner than we thought as experts um, we would be seeing this kind of devastation and it swept across all of the tropical basins. It hit Hawaii and Florida's, uh, of course reefs here in the United States, but it, it left the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic um, equally ravaged. Um, this site was probably the worst ravaged because it was one of the hottest sites. But, but I got the distinct displeasure of diving um, about eight times between 2014 and, and this view and I've been there since and it's a it's in a flux and a transition that will take years to sort out as you, this kind of hit unfolds. And so I kind of, you know, had to take stock of 2016. 2016 was also an important year for this country. And so, uh, of course, we elected um, that administration um, during the same moment that I was diving on this reef, looking at this underwater on Christmas Island um, when that happened on election day. And so, you know, I, I'm just not basically, uh, I guess what I'm show, trying to share with you is that this was not just a hit uh, for this particular reef system and for the global coral climate research community, but also personally for me, it was a, a call to action. It was a pivot point for me um, that kind of drove home the point that we're just really much later, um, too late for, for this reef, right? Um, and we're going to be too late for many other precious things. And it's time for me to stop thinking about the impact side of the equation and time for me to start thinking about the solution side professionally and personally. And so that's really um, where I came back and after several weeks of deep introspection and maybe a lot of tissues and hot chocolate, um, you know, I, I came out the other side really committed to walking this new path. And so, um, I had the honor during this time of participating in the drafting of the IPCC report, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm not gonna belabor um, some of the grimness that came out of that because there's 3,700 pages of, of grimness in there. Um, <laughs> it was a lot, um, but this is some of the things if, if, you, if you want to read them, you know, language like anthropogenic influence on warming is unequivocal. These extremes are ticking up. Sea level rise is upon us and will continue for centuries to come. 
um, we can still limit warming to this number of 1.5 degrees, but we have to get to 50% emissions reductions by 2030 on our flight path to net zero emissions by 2050. So you can't just get to 2050 with net zero. You have to bring the plane down on a flight path with a carbon budget that doesn't exceed that carbon budget, and that means 50% by 2030. That, that's our job, that, that we are going to be on that watch, right? And, and some of us won't be on that watch, and our kids will be on the next watch, and their kids and their kids through this century and beyond as we try to claw our way back to an ecosystem that is livable for as many living beings on this planet as possible. And so, you know, we're out of time, and, and this is my thesis, that we need an all-in, all-of-the-above approach to climate solutions. And I don't just mean emissions here. I mean also the, the devastation that's going to rain down. We need to use and harness the best available science to keep people safe this decade and beyond. Because as we can see from these headlines, this is already upon us, and the scrambling is unnecessary if we really use science to the best purpose, because these impacts have been coming for a long time. We've known about them. And so we should be preparing to keep people safe. And of course, this most important question for Georgians, how can Georgia lead? And Georgia can lead in many, many different ways. I'm going to show you some key ways in which Georgia is leading. Um, Georgia is leading because we have something called the Georgia Climate Project. You can go check it out. I'm going to talk about Drawdown Georgia, which is a marquee project of this entity, and I'm co-director of Georgia Climate Project, and we're kicking off a project called Resilient Georgia. This is kind of emissions-focused, and this is um, keeping people safe-focused, and all of it science-based. And so this is a website, you can go check it out, drawdowngeorgia.org. I do encourage you to do so. There are ways for individuals to plug into an evidence-based approach to greenhouse gas reductions. Um, and this is the top 20 solution set for Georgia. It's a roadmap for carbon neutrality by 2030 for Georgia. And, and these are the kinds of things it has. Some of them are very known, like EVs, and some of them are maybe less known, like um, you know, demand response. Some of this electricity stuff is, is very interesting and important. But I wanted to flag in black some of the ways that individuals can tick off um, individual items on this top 20 list for Georgia and, and get going, right? So I think I do pretty much all of this stuff. I'm still waiting for an EV to come that can seat um, my large family and doesn't cost me $100,000. Um, but yeah, so you know, think about Trees Atlanta and our urban tree canopy and then recycling. These are ways that actually add up from an evidence-based perspective to the top 20 solutions on our way to carbon neutrality. If we don't do those things, we won't get there. This is something I want to talk about from an organizational perspective, so taking up from the individual to think about what organizations can do, perhaps like St. Luke's. Um, this is something called the Carbon Reduction Challenge. I've been running it for over 10 years. And in this challenge, students partner with outside organizations, typically uh, around the Atlanta area, and they design and move to implementation a pretty large-scale energy efficiency project. And there is a lot of carbon to be had in the immediate Atlanta area because we tend to be more wasteful with electricity because our rates are lower than many other areas of the country. And so this is an, a y-axis here that is in pounds of carbon dioxide avoided, and 20 million pounds is a very large amount of carbon that these students have avoided the emissions of. That's the best kind of carbon, right? The kind that never gets emitted, <laughs> in my perspective. Uh, so this 20 million pounds is a equivalent to running over 30 homes fully solar for 20 years. So 
That, that, and they're saving organizations money. It's not costing organizations money to do this. And so you might say, how does this magic work? This is one such project with the Georgia ACLU in which student teams partnered with them to design a, 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 an altered work week plan on the one hand that was formalized as an organizational policy, so a flex work policy, and then also HVAC tweaks to their schedule and to their set points um, that netted them an additional you know, tens of thousands of pounds of CO2. So that is, and this is just per year, right? This is very large amount of carbon that these students are doing, and this didn't cost the organization a dime. They're in fact saving um, money, as you can see here. So I wanted to switch the impact side a bit, because this is some of the work that I'm really doing right now at Georgia Tech, and I wanted to um, talk about it. The second report from the IPCC just came out a couple months ago, and they were really flagging the point that the climate change impacts that are coming into our environment are actually going to be raining down on the most vulnerable among us. That is true in Atlanta, that is true across the nation, and that is especially true across the world. And so this is just an image from Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas, and a quote from um, somebody who is acutely aware of this as a former prime minister in Ethiopia. The injustice of climate change lies in the fact that those who have contributed nothing to its genesis will suffer the most from its consequences, right? And so for me, this, this just really distills this mor the morality of this moment that we find ourselves in and challenges me as an individual, certainly, and I, I hope Georgia Tech as an organization to think about what, what we can do. The vulnerability in the United States is acute. It is particularly acute for low-income communities of all races and ethnicities, but it is acutely a problem for minority communities and low-income communities. That nexus is where the impacts will be largest. And this is an EPA assessment that was just released last fall. And there are a number of categories there, but I'm gonna talk about two projects quickly with Georgia Tech is leading on extreme heat, called Urban Heat ATL, and down on the coast, smart sea level sensors looking at sea level rise both from a uh, vulnerability and justice-based perspective. So this is a project I co-lead with a Spelman professor, Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks, noting that extreme heat is already the leading cause of weather-related deaths in the United States. It's difficult to quantify, but it's in the thousands of deaths per year. Now, in a COVID era, of course, all of these numbers become uh, difficult to, to, to process because we're much higher than that right now. But I'm gonna show you an episode from Portland, actually, that I think drives home this idea that it's actually quite an exceptional loss that can occur with these extreme heat. And it actually can be worse than the baseline COVID deaths that we're experiencing right now. I'm gonna show you that um, in a minute. But first, look at this. Um, summer history of all summers in Portland, Oregon, and look what happened last summer, three days leaping off of that distribution in an otherworldly way. And they had devastating losses during that heat wave across um, Washington and Oregon. We remember what, watching those headlines, right? And these are the heat-related deaths on that particular week. And you can see the COVID baseline for Washington and Oregon. This is just deaths per week of any cause. Okay, and you can see the spikes in those days are really clearly linked to that extreme heat exposure across Washington and Oregon. 
And then you wanna think about why do so many people die if this is a known problem, and it has been historically a known problem, it's already the leading cause of weather-related death in the States. We have lack of access to air conditioning, climate change, substandard housing, suboptimal emergency planning, and then of course all of this is exacerbated by systemic inequities related to socioeconomic as well as racial and ethnic demographics. Now, in terms of climate change, they did an analysis of this event and they found that this event was a black swan type event, okay? In, in the current climate, it was a one in a thousand year event. In the previous industrial climate, it was a one in 150,000 year event. Uh, unfortunately, and very soberingly, in the two degree C of warming world, it will be a one in five or 10 year event. So we have tipped the statistics so much, but we're going to tip it so much more in the next coming decades, in a decade or two, right? So that, that is, to me, just an amazing amount of research that goes into helping us understand the exceptionality of this event or lack thereof going forward. So I'm gonna um, skip some of this because I wanna get to the sea level piece, um, but we are doing this project, Urban Heat ATL, with this little sensor here, mapping heat extremes across Atlanta and looking for where these extremes are occurring and how we could work with the city and emergency planners at the county level in Fulton County to try to bring solutions to bear. So raising awareness and thinking about how we can intervene in some of those deaths that we know are coming to the Atlanta communities, maybe not this year, but in the very near term. And so these are some of the faces of Urban Heat ATL community scientists out there doing this mapping, Spelman College, Georgia Tech, and Southwest Atlanta. Okay, I'm gonna to skip to the coast because I wanna talk about the coast, but this is a very cool project. Go to urbanheatatl.org. We're also working in K through 12 schools because you can't leave the next generation behind, folks. <laughs> right, we have to bring them along with us. They actually have to do much better than us as stewards of their own community safety as well as their emissions. So down on the coast, we have a sea level rise problem. This is the Tybee Island Causeway. I'm sure you've been there. You know it's very low, closes quite frequently. Flooding is getting much worse. This is the NOAA tide gauge on the coast. Um, this is the kind of event that happens on a regular basis. You have blue sky and you have the ocean in your backyard. This is my co-PI's house down in Savannah one day on Thanksgiving day. Look out your window and there's ocean in your backyard. So you know, this is the kind of thing that helps people understand that this is a now term issue. Sea level rise rates have just been recently updated by NOAA, 10 to 14 inches of sea level rise by 2050. That's more than we've had um, historically over the last 100 years. So take what's happened over the last 100 years and that's what we're gonna have to 2050. That's pretty certain actually. That's extrapolating the rates that we have right now going on. And then 3.5 to seven feet by 2100. That would remake the entire Georgia coastline in, in extremely profound ways. And the question is how do we use this available information to help communities keep themselves and their infrastructure and their economies safe, right? That needs to be starting, that plan needs to start happening now for 2050, 2060, 2070, because that kind of infrastructure and those kind of decisions take time. So enter this project called Smart Sea Level Sensors, where we are using a shoebox-sized ultrasonic detection device developed at Georgia Tech. It talks to its own special communication networks. It's extremely low cost. One of these is $250, 
and the NOAA tide gauge that we have down on the Georgia coast is $75,000, <laughs> okay? That's why Georgia has one tide gauge <laughs> on the coast, okay? Which is uh, fair, but we're, we've, we're laid down 55 of these sensors so far, and we're working with emergency planners, K through 12 schools, as well as um, uh, historically marginalized communities to think about what does equitable resilience mean on the coast. This is a map of the sea level sensors we have deployed uh, down on the coast in Chatham County right now, and you can go to um, our sea level sensors uh, website, and you, sealevelsensors.org, and you can check out more information. But I'm going to wrap it up just by noting that some of my social science colleagues at Georgia Tech have been so helpful in helping us to understand what equitable resilience might look like and what engagement could look like on this very difficult and complex topic. So this is a, something called the map room that a colleague of mine has developed to engage these communities down on the coast in thinking about what their priorities are, what their inherent community assets are, and what they might like to see for their future in their communities. And we're honored to be working as well with the Gullah Geechee communities down on the coast, um, who, of course, have a huge stake in the future of marshlands and property um, handovers and emergency planning policies, uh, because, uh, of course, they, their lives and cultural heritage is intertwined with the most low-lying regions of the, uh, of the coast. So how can you engage for change? This is my kind of call to action, is to think about it on multiple levels. And what works for you is going to be different than what works for you. And where you can have the most impact is different than where you can have the most impact. So there's no one size fits all. But we all can think about helping organizations that we are affiliated with, whether you're an alum at an institution, whether you're a parishioner or a congregation like this, whether you are, have a kid at a, at a workplace or a grandkid in a school. Um, you can help think about how that organization can move towards carbon neutrality. Pledge it, plan it, and then implement it because climate scientists are getting very tired of empty pledges right now, <laughs> okay? 2050, carbon neutral by 2050 is an empty pledge. It's not aligned with science. It's not sufficient. So when you hear that, you should be thinking to yourself, what's your plan to 2030, Dr. Cobb wants me to ask you. And if they say, we don't have one, say then it's not science-based, it's not helpful, okay? It's not enough. So challenge organizations to think about that pledge. And then if you have a pledge, get a plan, because pledge without a plan isn't a pledge, and then implement it. And then the other thing is we have this climate justice issue here at home in Atlanta and across the state of Georgia, so very, very acutely. Urban Heat ATL is focused right now on urban communities, but it's actually the rural communities in Georgia who also stand to suffer inordinately. Many low-income communities are going to be uh, denied access to sufficient air conditioning to keep themselves safe in the coming heat extremes because of acute energy poverty across the state. So that's not just an urban issue. It's a George issue, and of course it's a national issue and a global issue. So Partnership for Southern Equity, I would lift them and their work up in this space. They are moving very, very quickly on these key issues. And the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance is a partner on ours and Urban Heat ATL. They are on it. They've been on this. They could use our help 
and we need to support them and learn from them and run with them. And then think about your own path. Um, when you engage for this level of change, I have like the most sustainable house in Atlanta probably after six years of this path myself. Um, but you know, I'm, I've definitely cut my emissions of their entire household more than 50% already. So I'm already on the Paris track, right? If everybody did that, we would actually be good. Okay, I'm, that's a complete fantasy, but you see what I'm saying here. And then talk about it. Don't be sheepish. Tell your friends, tell your families. Be, be excited about it because we all need to get excited and pat each other on the back for this and help each other along. You know, what worked on your roof, Dr. Cobb? How much did your solar panels cost? What e-bike do you like? All of those conversations are conversations we need to be having. And then, of course, talk about climate change. Why do you care? What motivates you? Um, and then vote, and then let's think about doing this together because we can't do it alone. Thank you so much. Is this on? I think so. It, it is on? Okay. Um, we will open it for questions. Um, I, folks, just come up, right? Yes, that Yes. Um, I have one question for you. I'll, I'll be the plant and start. Yeah. Um, I have some very long-standing, educated friends who simply do not believe this. Mm. And I've, I've sat in her, her, at her coffee table, and I've seen the books where they will take these arguments and pick them apart. Sure. Um, and I don't know how to have a conversation. We do have Dr. Mm -hmm. Douglas talking about that next week. Yeah. But... Um, what about that kind of resistance? For example, we were talking about Antarctica right. and um, ice shelves breaking off. Right. And her answer was, they'll freeze back next winter. I mean, right. End of conversation. Right. right. And right. so I, you know, I don't know whether to shut conversation down or how do we talk about it yeah. um, more? Okay, a couple things there. First, that, um, you know, folks are, are moving towards an awareness that this is happening very, very quickly. So five years ago, uh, the number of, of folks that were uh, kind of in, engaged in thinking about this was roughly half than what it is right now, just because of the headlines that we've all lived through. And that includes Georgians. So let's bring it home. About 72% of Georgians describe themselves as concerned about climate change. Now, some of those folks may not believe that we caused the problem. <laughs> okay, all right, but, but I'm okay with that for now because we need to be working on resilience. We need to be thinking about keeping our communities safe. And so the commonality that I found with even the most conservative Republicans in this state is about that resilience piece. And the, the Georgia Chamber downtown wants to talk about resilience now because they're seeing these disasters more frequently uh, disrupting our, our entire lives. And of course the pandemic is also a talking point in resilience space as well. So when you think about it from that perspective, I don't need you to, you know, vote. Every, everybody's not everybody's going to vote a certain way. Not everybody's going to have this as a top priority. But there are conversation starters that we can use to remind folks that when you do harness science for public good, it's not just about cold showers and taking away your hamburgers. It's about keeping our communities safe today, right now, and addressing these issues that are happening and these, these harm that's happening right now and is going to uh, be a service to communities for decades to come no matter what. That's, that's one way to look at it. Oh, don't run. Yeah, we're good. First of all, I'm thrilled you're in Savannah, since, since that's where I grew up. Oh, yeah. Um, I love I, being in Savannah. I have a 
house on the coast of South Carolina mm -hmm. and, and it's tidal. Mm. And the low tide now is extreme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I know that's climate change and change in the seas. Mm -hmm. the, the little town believes it's because somebody put up a ramp for um, mm -hmm. kayaks. Mm -hmm. Mm. And if they just take that off, it would be fine. Mm. Now, what am I going to do about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what, what you can do is you can, you know, point them to this project, this uh, sea level sensors project that we have um, that is actually installing sensors in communities like your own um, and providing that kind of hyper-local data and information. And then I think that's where people want to see it come home to value in their backyard. You know, they don't care about the NOAA technical reports that are released every two years and say certain feet by certain thing. Um, and then what we're doing with that, I didn't have time to discuss it, is we have the sensors, which is the huge conversation starter. People love them. And then we marry them with one of the world's most sophisticated models of ocean circulation. And then we show the communities how we're matching the data from the sensors and their communities across this array of sensors and we're doing that because we understand the physics of what's going on, right? And, and then you start to get some lights going off like, oh, you know, here's some scenarios for your community to stay safe from, you know, sea level rise in the next 10 years. Here's, here's some challenges you're going to have. Here's the problem areas. Here's what we think might happen. If this kind of hurricane comes through, it could do this. If that kind of hurricane comes through, it's gonna do that. And so we can play out these scenarios for the future and people all of a sudden believe the model because it's, it's looking exactly like the data streams from their communities. So we'd welcome your engagement with the project. Yeah. Can, um, can you tell us a little bit about your path to a low carbon lifestyle? Yeah, sure. So um, when I started thinking about this space, um, I remember sitting down with my husband in 2015 and saying like, He's a climate scientist, too. We were sitting on date night. We escaped our four children. And you know, we were sitting there. And I said, I'm starting to feel like we're maybe not doing enough. And I just want your opinion. He's like, we're doing enough. We're climate scientists. It's great. I'm like, yeah, OK. I'll have another glass of wine. That's fine. Um, and it just went like that. And then in 2016, you know, we, 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 went, we went through this series of conversations. And in 2017, um, I woke up on New Year's Day. It's the birthday for my identical twins on New Year's Day. It's very special. Um, and so I just said, take this opportunity to walk a different path. And so um, I inventoried all of my carbon on a spreadsheet, because that's what scientists do <laughs> as a first step, you know, like triage the whole thing, see where the biggest pieces are. Turns out that my flying as a frequent flyer platinum member of, of Delta um, was um, about 85% of my own personal carbon footprint. And so I said, oh, I can't stop that overnight, but I'll reduce it 30% this year and see how that goes, because it felt really scary. Um, and then I did another 30% in 2018. So I was down 60%. And then in 2019, I pledged to stay on the ground. And then everybody stayed on the ground. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I feel, you know, it, it's an interesting opportunity for reflection and some structural changes. Um, but that was 85% of my carbon footprint down. 
And then the rest of my family went with me as well. Even across my extended family, it's not that they pledged to stay on the ground, but they, they were pledging to hit certain targets for themselves, which, which I think is that ripple effect. I did buy solar panels in 2019, um, cover 50% of our electricity. Um, we parked the car during the week. We don't drive it. We bike our kids um, everywhere. I, we have tons of bikes, e-bikes. E-bikes are great. They will change your life. Oh, my god. Um, and then composting, vegetarian diets. Um, you know, it, it just is a whole process. Appliance replacements, HVAC upgrades. We're lucky to have the resources to do it. And so um, kind of to chart that path. And then five of my friends got solar panels and 10 more got e-bikes. And so it really matters when you can be that person who's out there on the front, you know, the early adopter. And, and you know, we're living a beautiful, rich, fulfilling life with none of those high carbon trappings that we had before, just being making some very different choices. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good morning. Good morning. One of the things, my most disturbing thing, <clears throat> is we live in this <clears throat> incredible city. Yeah. And over the years people have come to visit me and they've said, Oh, all the trees, it's so green, it's yeah. lush. <clears throat> And now we see whole blocks yeah. of apartment buildings being built with no green anywhere. Right. And the percentage of, of what that means in terms of the balance for this city, we think of it as only for that neighborhood. Right. But I can't believe that doesn't affect That's a great the question. whole it does. metro area. It does. So trees are a climate solution on several fronts, first of all. So trees are a climate solution on a carbon front. <laughs> they store carbon for decades, and that's what we need right now. We don't need a 1,000-year storage. We need 20, 30 years of, of time that we can buy, emergency-like. So they're doing that service right now. When we tear them down, we just exacerbate our problem, first of all. Second of all, and that happens globally, deforestation is 15% of our greenhouse gas emissions that go up in the sky every year. And that's happening in Brazil and Indonesia as the two countries that are responsible for 90% of that. So we're turning that knob in the wrong direction. It should be moving in the other direction. It could so easily be, but that's a whole woo. Um, but then they're also really important for uh, maintaining um, urban temperatures at a livable level. So the fact that we have these urban heat islands that are 15 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than some other areas of town, and, and that's where these low-income, historically marginalized communities of color are living in those concrete jungles. Um, and so we need to think about planting trees to get ahead of that temperature extreme. Third, trees are wonderful um, mitigators of hydrological extremes. So uh, they keep areas from becoming drought parched, and they also um, can, can absorb water uh, and, and through root, infil and root infiltration um, for buffering some of what we know will be extreme rainfall coming down the pike. So they are such a climate solution on so many different levels that we should be thinking about our tree ordinance here in Atlanta with that in mind. That is not the case right now. We are not harnessing the best available science and information for our tree ordinance planning. There are lots of competing economic interests in play with the tree ordinance, but uh, climate change is not one of the factors that's considered. And I hope it will be in this new administration. Thank you for that great question. So I have kind of a follow-up to that. Um, mm -hmm. So you read a lot about carbon offset programs. Yes. So yep. you know, you want to take your trip to Europe, 
buy some carbon offsets yeah. and um, but then you read that maybe the carbon offsets are more kind of to make you feel good and yeah. don't actually accomplish anything yeah. because the people who are planting trees then are ripping the trees up and then replanting them because that's in their economic self-interest. I know. So right. is there, are there organizations or places for carbon offsets that have been vetted that, you know, that actually are accomplishing what they claim they're accomplishing. Is there any that you can recommend or a website you could recommend for people to go see and figure out for themselves? Okay, very good question. I get this a lot. So um, offsets are unregulated, as you know. Um, there is no accountability. There's no transparency. Um, so I, I, I offset you know, my flights beginning in 2017. Um, I call it the gateway drug <laughs> because then eventually you wake up and you're like, uh, maybe this is just a massive delusion um, right. and I maybe to do something a little different. And that's what happened to me. I right. like started digging a little bit like, whoa, $2 to go to Europe? I, I don't know. Sounds sketchy. Right. Um, but, but so what I started doing was giving money directly to some of these organizations. And so that's what I do now. In fact, the honorarium that I've been gifted from St. Luke's is going straight to an environmental justice organization based in Savannah. Um, so that's my approach. Okay. So I recommend a um, North Asheville, North Carolina-based organization called Energy Savers Network, and I can send um, the information to Sharon. She can get it out. Um, they actually are a 100% volunteer organization that retrofits low-income homes in the Asheville area to save those people money, and, and of course it saves carbon. So I think about the nexus of climate justice and my own engagement um, wherever I can, and that's where the needles that I'm trying to push. If the carbon is a co-benefit, that's fine, but I'm, I'm very justice forward in the work that I do and, and try to move resources to where the solution is, if that makes sense. Okay. So I, I recommend that versus clicking buttons on a Delta website for an offset program. And I, I wish we had off, uh, regulated offsets. Right. We should be arguing for that because it would be easy to have a carbon market in this country but we don't have one, and so until we do, we cannot exercise that, um, that mechanism. I have one question. Okay. I know they're trying to wrap it up, but I know y'all are, you all can always reach out to me um, by email, and I will take your question, or we can have a quick You might call. have covered this, but I keep reading that in 10 years, we're all going to be ride driving electric cars. Yes, that's will right. Will that be helpful? Yes, that will be very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I get this question a lot, too. So the Georgia grid itself, which is not the lowest carbon grid in the country by far, um, but it's, 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 it's about you know middle of the road, is already better to plug in an electric vehicle than to drive a hybrid or a fully conventional gas vehicle. So please do you know push, push that forward. Uh, my next purchase will be an EV, and I hope all of yours will as well as we think about um, hastening this very important transition. But as a biker, I have to say it's also important to have good bike and pedestrian infrastructure. So uh, the solutions tell us that if everybody purchases an electric vehicle at the same rate in mileage usage that we have today, um, we, we're not exceeding, we're not going to achieve the maximum carbon benefit uh, if unless we access some additional bike and pedestrian opportunities for the next generation that we never had. I want to help you end on a, an optimistic note, so I hate to ask this pessimistic question, and I might need you to step in too, but <laughs> I find um, that this is, I almost didn't come today because I was like, you know, I just can't even deal with this. Like, this okay. is too upsetting. We're not going to be able to move the needle. Our yeah. kids are just, it's going to be in the toilet. The earth's going to spin off its axis, and 
I just wonder how you keep optimistic in the face of, of this, and then um, I'm curious too about the role that faith plays because I think this is such an overwhelming topic, and it, you know, I, we have an electric vehicle, we try to comp it, we try to do yeah. the things, but when it feels like it's not enough, how right. do you stay, you know, keeping on? Yeah, so <laughs> I got this question before uh, my talk, so um, I, I didn't have an easy answer for this in, in, in 20, at the end of 2016. Um, I think I felt like that and a lot more, um, frankly, at, at the time, completely overwhelmed with the daunting task of the next four years and then the decades to come of what I knew those four years would mean for lost momentum. And um, I think I've, I've, I've found in my own path that waking up every day and asking myself, you know, what can I do today? How can I make a contribution today? And I'm lucky in my role at Georgia Tech to be able to do that every day professionally. Uh, but I'm also able to help my children every day uh, think about what a lifestyle looks like that is consistent with my vision of a 2050 world that I know they will have. So I'm gonna get choked up, but um, you know, that's really, that's really what it means to me is about walking that path and, and being a, a demonstrator for what I call it to my kids. I say, you know, we're living 2050 now. That's how I think about it. That's how I want to be here in this moment. And so when they get to 2050, maybe they're saying, I want to live 2075, I want to live 2100. I, I want, we want to always keep moving, but we want to be comfortable with where we sit. And that required some massive changes in my family's way of doing business. And my husband still complains about the solar panels uh, expense. But, um, but, but yeah, that's my own kind of daily action of doing. Um, and that's part of my bike commute every day is just reminding myself that I, I refuse to be trapped in a, in a metal tank every day for, for 20 minutes to go two miles. Um, that's just me. So, but whatever your path looks like has also got to be celebrated <laughs> and it, it's, it, it's enough um, because we have these seminal moments in our nation's history and we're gonna have one this fall <laughs> and we're gonna have one in another two years and these are the turning points that we need to focus on to come together because without that sea change, continued push, uh, we will not get there in all of our efforts will not add up to be enough. So we gotta find the energy to stay, to stay working and stay striving and stay building to those moments. And that's what I'm focused on right now. Amen to that. And yep. So uh, we need to go to church, but to say something on what St. Luke's is doing, we're doing, um, we're working on renewing our energy audit. So we're going to figure out where we stand and what we can do to improve what we're doing on this site. Um, and Sue Cheryl and Randy and others can tell you more about that. David Gillen is here. There are others that can tell you more about that if you'd like to hear about it and get involved. And then, you know, it's the season of Easter. There's a reason we're doing this in May and not April. We didn't want to do it in Lent. We wanted to do it in Easter. And if you've been wondering what resurrection is good for, this is what resurrection is good for. So we are not just people that hope nature works it out. We are people that come up against what seems like death and defeat and we know that we can, we can rise again, we come again, right? And it means that we imagine greater things than seem just normally or naturally possible, and death is not inevitable, and it is not an end. Um, 
So don't forget to come to church and we uh, and come back to this next week. Yep. Thank you.